This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. The Chief of the General Staff says Britain is in danger of being war-weary. We should be prepared for our potential adversaries to exploit this, and we should beware of overcorrecting from the undeniably awkward experiences of the past decade. Why the German Chancellor knows exactly what makes Putin tick, but is time running out? And do Jack Russells make good spies? The Chief of the General Staff has warned that Britain's reluctance to embark on new military operations could have dangerous consequences. General Sir Peter Wall said potential enemies could take advantage of Britain's war weariness after a decade of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Syria vote, a preference for standoff engagement with uh, precision weapons, with limited land engagement as we saw in Libya, are uh, indications of this reticence. In, in the case of the latter... We now understand better uh, the limitations of such an approach. Uh, we should be prepared for our potential adversaries to exploit this, and we should beware of overcorrecting from the undeniably awkward experiences of the past decade. And he said that the current crisis in Eastern Europe shows you can never make assumptions about stability. We've only got to look to the tension in Ukraine to see a situation that was not foreseen and is confounding our previous assumptions about st stability across Europe. The key point here is not about the accuracy of our horizon scanning and prediction. It's that the reliance at all on that sort of horizon scanning and prediction um, tends not to stand uh, the tests of time and history. And that having ready forces sends strategic messages to potential adversaries that will shape their behaviour towards us ab initio, i.e. they serve as a deterrent. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Christopher, is he right? What do you think of what the Chief of the General Staff had to say? The most important thing is that uh, he believes, and the whole Chiefs of Staff believe this, whether whatever the service they are, that come the drawdown and then the withdrawal in, in Afghanistan, and as we approach a general election... And as it's far more difficult for a practical thing, for example, to get one's old dad into a care home because there's no care home or there's no money, the general public's going to turn around and say, why, why, why are we spending uh, in Whitehall the third, fourth biggest budget on defence when there's no war going on? Why can't we spend it elsewhere? And that is their fundamental problem because in 2015 there's a defence review. Now, the most important thing he did actually say there um, was that uh, in crises that are not foreseen uh, and their scanning and prediction record is not very good. You can go through every operation the United Kingdom has been involved in during the past decade and you have the same thing. And when he says we did not predict what was happening in, in Ukraine then that's the beginning yeah. of his problem. He ought to be saying, why haven't we got a better intelligence services, etc.? It's and not it's, simple as, you know, that people are being war-weary. But it, it is always the case, isn't it, that you don't know what's round the corner, do you? Why do you think he's saying it now? Is it because of the looming defence review? Is it because of drawdown from Afghanistan? It is something like that, but it's, it's not just the United Kingdom. Uh, if you go back to last October, there was a speech in Croatia by the Secretary-General of NATO... And he said every single country in NATO is not explaining to their electorate why defence is important. 
And the more that you get out of big issues such as, you know, we left I- Iraq and now Afghanistan we're going, etc., and that we haven't gone into Syria, we haven't gone into Ukraine, the more it is important to, to explain. And he is really picking up on something which was said last October, and that's, from NATO's point of view, that's extremely good that he is. Well, what about this use of the expression moral disarmament um, in the West after 10 years of politically awkward campaigns? Do you agree with that? Is that really going on? It's a danger because... Because you have in the 20th century this expression of the moral disarmament and, and fundamentally uh, disarming on, on, on grounds of on moral grounds. That's basically why should we do this? Why, why are we doing this in, in, this, in this very, very modern world? But what is, the, what is particularly important is that it's not so much that the campaigns were wrong, is that now there is a, a sense that the British public, forget the others in, in NATO Europe, British public is beginning to mistrust the value judgments of the politicians and taking them into a war. We start that with the January 2003 march against the Iraq war. They're saying politicians are going into things and getting into into problems which have all proved to be rotten. Do you believe there is a a military reluctance in Britain, though? Is that true? And and might enemies take advantage of it? Because we hear a lot of talk about the efforts made on cyber security, for example. You you don't know exactly what's going on. It's not necessarily about deployment of troops on the ground, is it? That's right. And, And don't forget where the United Kingdom is, is probably the most fourth effective military force in the whole world. Uh, it is the only, apart from the Turks, I, su- I suspect, and even the Americans who are reducing their forces by uh, in trillions of dollars. Um, we've, we've actually got a situation where the United Kingdom is still a pretty powerful force, whatever the restructured form it's in. Now, when he says... Uh, and this is a bit I, I suppose I smiled a bit at. He said, "Well, our potential enemies are figuring out they haven't got the they haven't got the balls for it. They won't do it again, right?" And I reckon I'm trying to figure out which enemy is sitting there, especially if we're talking about asymmetric warfare. We're talking about uh, terrorism, etc., as, as a form of uh, counter warfare. Uh, sitting there, say, "Oh, you know, the politics of the United Kingdom at the moment." No, it is really not like that. If somebody wants to have a zap, not at you. But it's somewhere else where you have uh, an interest, and given Britain's colonial past, we have interests all over the world still. Mm. That is the, that is the problem. But it's not as if the uh, we're, we're not encouraging the enemy. Where oh. we, what he wants to do is encourage the British population and to to tell the uh, the, the politicians. Don't, don't decimate the forces. Christopher, stay with us. The departure of Western forces by the end of December is just one big change facing Afghanistan this year. Before then, it will be getting a new leader. Voting for a new president begins in less than four weeks' time. In the last week, the Taliban has threatened to attack the poll while one of the more high-profile candidates has pulled out of the race. James Hurst has been looking at the contenders. Hello, James. Who's pulled out? Uh, it is Qayyum Karzai, older brother of Hamid Karzai. Remember Hamid? Karzai cannot stand again under the Afghan constitution. His two terms are up. Uh, So Qayyum Karzai was in the final list of 11, but uh, the president said he'd asked his brother to quit the race to prevent what he called outside interference, something he feels happened a lot in the last election back in 2009. Uh, In fact, Qayyum Karzai's name will still appear on the ballot because it's too late for it to be taken off the papers, but he has now vowed to back uh, another candidate, former foreign minister, who is also believed to be Hamid Karzai's favoured successor. Mm, So who are the front-runners? 
So let's start with uh, that man who uh, is believed to be backed by Hamid Karzai, Zalmay Rasul. He is a uh, foreign, foreign, former foreign minister. Uh, some people feel that actually, you know, if if he gets the job, Hamid Karzai will be living in a building just down the road and still hmm. pulling some strings. Uh, there are three who the polling suggests could get at least a quarter of the vote in the first round. Uh, next one on the list, Abdullah Abdullah. He came second last time, uh, also a former foreign minister. He's effectively the, the opposition leader. I mean, an awful lot of the names on the, the ballot are, are independent, but he, he sort of heads a, a national opposition coalition. Now, his power base sits a lot outside the, the ethnic Pashtuns, so he, he kind of draws a, a lot from the minorities Mm. within Afghanistan. Then there's Ashraf Ghani Ahmadzai. He only got 3% in the election in 2009, but his his poll ratings, from what I've been reading, seem to be going higher. Now, he he's another one who could take more than a quarter of the vote. And he I think his popularity has been increased because he's allied with a former anti-Taliban militia commander. But there's a total of 10 on the list. And it's a two-round system which makes things unpredictable. I'll just run you through some of the others. Uh, a grandson of the former king, Nader Naim, Abdul Russell Sayaf, he, he's a hardline Islamist. Mm. Uh, seen by the West as too hardline, probably, to, to get in. Uh, Gulaga Shirzai, he's former governor of southern Kandahar. Abdul Rahim Wardak, a name that many may recognise, former defence minister. Mohammed Daud Sultanzoy, interesting character, politician turned TV host and analyst. Mm. Uh, and, another Islamist, Kubutin Hilal, who's a member of Hezbi Islami mm. uh, insurgent group, and also Hidayat Amin Asala, who's a former advisor to Hamikaz. I stepped aside in the last election. Christopher, your, your predictions, and, and who's the best person for a stable Afghanistan? Uh, in Washington, probably in Whitehall, they'd say they would like Abdullah Abdullah. And Abdullah Abdullah is, is he thinks that way. He's got a problem, as James was sort of suggesting there. You know, you've got to sort of control things outside of the Pashtun area. His main power base is in the northern Tajik. And that you have to bring into the fact that they've always believed that only a Pashtun could, could, could really run the country. Then you've got the other element, which is not on any polling list, and that is Taliban. Mm. And whether they, who they will sort of work with, support, because anybody who's going to do this... They've got to be able to work with Taliban. Not just work with them, they've got to talk to them. Mm. And that's already started. Uh, but I do like the idea that um, uh, that Karzai will just be around the road, down the road in a mm. bungalow uh, with a party line into whoever's present. If it's Abdullah, Abdullah, he will not get that, and he will be on his way out. Mm. And his brother may as well go back to Atlantic City and open a restaurant. Of course, James, this bilateral security agreement, crucial for international forces staying on in Afghanistan mm. beyond the end of the year, still not signed. Presumably, um, the next person is going to be crucial, um, and the real result of the election crucial as to whether that happens or not. Yeah, uh, when we were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago at the NATO Defence Ministers' meeting, uh, it, it was the first time I'd heard, heard people go public and go, yeah, we really aren't expecting Hamid Karzai to sign this now. Mm. But we are, they say, still expecting the, the, the next president to sign it. Now, uh, some people think that is over-optimistic because it's not just the bilateral security agreement. There's a, there's a, so that's one of the important things in the intray. But, it, you know, there is this question of how are they going to approach dealing with the Taliban? Um, because, you know, do, do, do they want a negotiation with the Taliban? Are they somebody who the Taliban feel they can negotiate with? But, of course, for ordinary Afghans, it's about the economy. It's mm. about their lifestyle. And this, then feeds into something else, which goes back to the bilateral security agreement, which is money and aid from the West. 
because if there's no bilateral security agreement... There's no aid either, is there? You're not going to see the money going in, and that includes money for security forces. So there's this really complex circle. An awful lot hangs on it, an awful lot of subtlety about whoever wins their priorities. But we might not know because of these two rounds until the summer. And that's why Abdullah Abdullah is important, because he will (laughs) sign that. And everything that flows from it, the other thing is, he's got an ear into uh, Royal Pindi. Uh, Islamabad, he's got a, 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 a rule that runs with the Pakistanis and that's the crucial part to, to negotiate as well. All right, Christmas stay with us. James Hurst, thank you. Sit rep with Still to come, did the Germans feed their spies pedigree chum? This is BFBS. Sit rep. The German Chancellor has accused Russia of exploiting its neighbours' weaknesses in what's been described as an emotional address to the German Parliament. Angela Merkel criticised Moscow in the strongest terms over its course in the Ukraine crisis. Es ist offenkundig, die territoriale Unversehrtheit und damit die staatliche Einheit der Ukraine werden ganz offen in Frage gestellt und verletzt. In einer Phase großer Unsicherheit in der Ukraine hat sich Russland nicht als Partner für Stabilität, sondern nutzt dessen gegebene Schwäche aus. Well, Christopher, my, my German's a little bit rusty. You suggested I should translate this. I'll, I'll give you an abbreviated version, the important bit. Russia has turned out not to be a partner for stability, but has exploited its vulnerability, namely Ukraine's. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when the war came down, and we got sort of the official end of communism, etc., 2001, uh, or, uh, is, is the starting point, although 1991 was the official part of it. But 2001, people started to think differently. Um, the Russians moved into offices in NATO headquarters. Uh, they have a council meeting with NATO. They attend NATO meetings. They even attend, um, for example, the uh, military councils on occasions. And the idea was that after, if you like, after Kosovo, etc., when Europe saw itself collapsing in many ways because of the consequences that spread out from Kosovo, that the Russians had a big part to play in this. Mm. Now, what we've actually seen is a disillusionment in a lot of those people who tried, in, certainly in the European Parliament, for example, in NATO, in the European Union, who said, listen, we've got to bring the Russians on board. What they're really talking about, and somehow one thinks that what Chancellor Merkel is really talking about is not Russia, it is Putin. Put This is the Putin that she, she knows. She understands him, she, doesn't she? She figures Putin. She's the only one... I reckon, out of the whole lot, except perhaps Sikorsky, who is the foreign minister of, of the Poland, who, who actually understands she'd been around him for about 14, 15 years. They were both sort of East German bound, and that's mean, I don't mean on the way there, but sort of locked into Germany for a long time. He was in Dresden, uh, etc., or in other places. Um, she understands how he thinks. She listens to him. She, she listens to his German. They kind of respect each other, don't they? It's not in just a funny yeah, kind of way. Well, he respects her for all sorts of reasons. One is she is, an, uh, she is the architect of some economic success. The other thing, she is, a, she is politically shrewd, whereas he is politically tough, and that's what he understands. So, the only, I think she is the only Western leader that he respects. So um, NATO has deployed AWAC surveillance aircraft, and now US troops are building up on the Polish border. Poland is worried, and reason to be so? 
Yeah, I mean, when you think about Poland, where it lives, I mean, apart from the fact that you say it's on the Ukraine border, I mean, Poland has been invaded. It's changed shape. It's had different attitudes, uh, different different characters. Their, their, their leaders are all sons, grandsons of people who have been involved. Sikorsky, I just mentioned him, the foreign minister. I mean, think about Sikorsky in World War Two, crucial sort of uh, leader, and that's the same same sort of family. They understand. They are frightened. If you go back to the 1980s, Russia was about to invade Poland and they really were going mm. to do it. And the last minute, the whole thing cooled. Now, if you're Polish, you know that Russia was about to invade you. So when somebody sort of waltzes around and says, oh, well, they won't do it again, you have to think to yourself, I'm Polish, they might. OK, so, so it sort of shows of strength in some matters, building up military exercises that were actually planned, um, some of them anyway. Uh, US, in terms of diplomacy, the US Secretary of State John Kerry is meeting Sergei Lavrov, the Russian Defence Minister, in London tomorrow, but he won't meet Putin. Why not? He says that at that level, Putin has got to make some backdowns, as he calls it. They've got to sort of... Uh, let's see what happens on Monday, for example, uh, how Putin reacts to the referendum in, in Crimea. But unless Putin makes it much clearer that he doesn't have any military ambitions into eastern Ukraine and maybe the rest of Ukraine, then there is no point in meeting because the only time people at that level meet... And if you're thinking of Putin, in theory, it should be Obama. The only reason you meet is because you've got what the Americans would call a gold pen affair at the end of it. In other words, you can get some sort of agreement. And that's not going to happen. So it all depends, all depends on how Putin reacts. And that's what's been the thing right the way through. What's Putin going to do next? Prime Minister David Cameron is in Israel today. He met Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday and now he's with the Palestinian leadership. Good peace talks. The Palestinians rocket Israel and Israel gunship the Palestinians on the day he's there. Professor Rosemary Hollis is with us from City University. Professor Hollis, good to speak to you. Israel, uh, Palestinian, is this thing ever going to be fixable? I don't think so. No, actually, since you ask. What the David Cameron seems to have done in this trip is fall into one of the available classic patterns of Western behaviour towards this conflict, which is, rather than pressure Israel, rather than antagonise Israel, because they're very good at fighting back and accusing Westerners of anti-Semitism, he is trying to ingratiate himself with his hosts in Israel to make them feel that he honours their history, he recognises their terrible traumas, he understands their security concerns and he's devoted to their future protection. And then on the back of that to say, but by the way, we would really love you to do something about the Palestinians. So how should he be conducting this, do you think? Well, he's already sent a signal that... Uh, some trade deals to demonstrate that he in Britain does not do sanctions on friends, does not do boycotts, uh, would be sufficient achievement for this trip. And that is the official British line. We don't do the boycott on Israel. We do do sanctions on other countries, but uh, not on Israel. And he went to Israel first. He spent the majority of his time there. And he's tagged on a trip to the West Bank to meet the Palestinian leadership in Bethlehem, not in their de facto capital, Ramallah, which is an indication to all concerned that the British recognize that the Israelis are the, the power in this situation. And much as they would 
would like a two-state solution, they don't see themselves as bringing it about. Christopher, is the Israel-Palestinian issue the clue to Middle East peace still? I've always thought so. Um, Do you still think so? Uh, about, well, I've always thought so, I think, probably up until about two and a half years ago, when um, then the whole of the Middle East seemed to get hold of iPhones and say, we're going to have a revolution, please come to it. And I think the whole pattern, it became far more complicated then. But what is very, very certain is that you cannot have uh, uh, any sort of agreement between, let's say, the Palestinians and, and the Israelis. You can't have necessarily even a two-state uh, agreement with them without the, um, the guarantors stepping in. So, for example, in, in traditionally, Egypt might have been a guarantor of some sort of peace. Uh, but Egypt, a guarantor of some sort of peace now, that's in a, a mess itself. Uh, what about Lebanon? Well, that's going through at the moment with the, with, with, with the attacks on, on, on Hezbollah, because Hezbollah sort of fighters are in Syria, etc. And so you've got a much more complex Middle East, if we can call it Middle East, right up to the, uh, the Maghreb, than we had, let's say, two and a half years ago. And it's interesting, say, three, four years ago, that the Obama administration had already abandoned the idea of this. Mm. And there was Tony Blair sitting in the Colony Hotel in, or whatever he was in, in, in East Germany, in East, uh, <laughs> East Jerusalem. Well, you know, there are parts of it like that. Uh, and, and not really getting him where. And this is the problem we've had. This thing... Yeah hasn't got anywhere, and the so-called Arab Spring hasn't helped it. Uh, yeah, and to this week, an important anniversary, three years since the, the, the unrest really began in Syria, and the former Foreign Secretary's been speaking about this, David Miliband, calling Syria the defining collective failure of this century so far. Rosemary Hollis, do you agree with that? No, I don't think Syria was amenable to quote-unquote Western intervention. Really, we've been talking, and you were talking earlier, Chris was talking earlier, about the uh, post-Cold War era. Mm. That is now over too, and Syria is just one indication. Even if there had been no intervention in Iraq or Afghanistan and Western forces had still the appetite for another intervention, inter military intervention in Syria to bring down a dictatorship and install a democracy would have had the same fate as it did in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I suppose, Christopher, Syria is an example of failed Western uh, diplomacy, starting perhaps with, with Tunisia. If you go right across that sort of Saharan Africa, Tunisia... Um, which it still hasn't got itself sorted out. Uh, Libya has just lost its premier, uh, its prime minister, because of a, an oil tanker that appeared to have, get, uh, to, 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 to have got out. Egypt's in a terrible state. I mean, this morning, I mean, uh, another load of soldiers were shot up in a bus. Um, look at Iraq. You know, Iraq, we went in there and we'll settle that one for you. 8,000 killed killed in the internecine warfare that's going on at the moment. Yes, Elections what, what coming use, up. What use is diplomacy in this situation? Nothing at all. And the other thing, Rosie, which puzzles me, and it certainly includes Syria, we're talking about here the three-year you know, anniversary of the whole thing, in every single case, in those six countries, if you include Yemen, the American and British and French intelligence proved absolute failures for uh, anticipating what was going to happen. Professor Hollis, uh, as someone who watches this very closely, I'm interested in you saying that this, we're now out of the post-Cold War era. What era are we in? We're into a multipolar world. If you consider the number of people who actually, the West, which is often equated with the 
international community represents. It's about 15% of the world population. There's this extraordinary dominance on the UN Security Council of permanent members, including Britain, France and the United States. They are not representative of the world and its power. China at least has a seat on the Security Council, and as does Russia. But the values on which they operate are not the ones that the West Europeans and the Americans like to think won the Cold War. Mm. Okay, Professor Rosemary Hollis from City University, thanks for your time today. The World Wide Web is 25 years old this week. We've been thinking about the impact it's had for those serving in the forces. Here's the MOD's Head of Online Engagement, Pippa Norris. Challenges good and challenges bad. I think the challenges that are bad is the fact that it's just so quick now. It's difficult to keep up. Um, and keeping pace with all the changes that are so dynamic in the digital industry is something that an organisation as large as ours uh, will find difficult to, to do. But equally at the same time, the internet and, and more predominantly social media these days has allowed us to learn a lot more about different cultures, uh, appreciate more, you know, a greater range of values. It's allowed us to recruit um, talented, uh, willing, capable young men and women from across all race and creeds uh, and, and uh, up and down the country. And it's also offered us a greater opportunity to, um, to be a much more open, transparent and integrated organisation. Yes, there are always going to be challenges as you go along, but I think being able to freely communicate, being able to reach out to audiences all around the world, um, tell people who are interested about who we are, what we do, uh, the, th the things that we do from humanitarian uh, work all the way to um, very, very tough kinetic activity in Afghanistan. These are sort of things that social media and, and the internet has allowed us. But more importantly, it's allowed us to connect with people. It's been invaluable for service personnel to stay in touch with their loved ones and family uh, families when they're deployed overseas. So let's not forget how important communication and connection is. At the same time, the challenges mean that you're going to have to stop and think a little bit more carefully because you are responsible. The minute you wear a uniform, you are representing the service and people will look to you as being an ambassador of the organisation. So even more even more importance to think very carefully before you post anything on social media. That was Pippa Norris, Head of Online Engagement at the MOD, and one of the points that she came out and said about keeping in contact has been borne out by your com comments on our Facebook page. Uh, Craig Crockhart said it's lets me communicate with old buddies from all over the world. Helen Ford, I can speak to my daughter on deployment. Liz Jo Meller, I can speak to my husband when he's away and keep in contact with my mum and dad. Uh, Christopher, it's, it's about more than that though, isn't it? Yeah, I tell you something, we've been talking about uh, the Middle East, Ukraine uh, relations with everybody and should we go to war, should we not go to war what the internet has done more than anything else it has stopped the defence ministry, the pentagon etc being able to control the message they can no longer you know the, the defence hacks or whoever can no longer... Good or they, bad for defence uh, very very good for defence mm. because eventually... Perhaps not so good for security in certain situations. Except that people don't actually uh, quite often understand what in fact they're hearing what they're reading mm. whereas the Ministry of Defence for example, I'll give you a quick example in 1980, after 1982 and the Falklands War the MOD set up a PR system or research to say this is how we will control and this is how we'll give out information 
what they hadn't understood, there was a thing developing then called a mobile telephone, mm. which you can go and get your own information. And that is the thing that the MOD still hasn't managed to grasp. We said earlier in the programme we'd be asking the question, did the Germans feed their dogs pedigree chum? Mm. What's all that about, Christopher? Well, there's some papers being released, in fact, the National Archive at the moment, that showed at the beginning of the First World War, uh, reports went back from the front <coughs> saying these dogs and these cats keep coming in the trenches. And we <laughs> think they're German dogs and German cats. I mean, if they spoke German, I don't know. But that's what they thought. And they thought Suspicious they, movements backwards and forwards on a regular basis. They must be spies. And, mm. you know, these soldiers are going along and they're getting orders, you know, go and have a look at their stools and sort of part them and see if there are any you messages. Serious? Oh, absolutely, you see. They took things quite seriously at, at, at that time. Uh, and I, I thought it, it struck me that the, the military has always had this thing about sort of small beasts, small mm. animals. I mean, the, the army still see a, a tank as a horse, for example. They like to sort of shove hay down one end and sweep up the other. But the uh, but there's... I remember, I remember Royal Marine uh, guy, a major, who had a black Labrador called Max in a unit I was in. And he had trained Max, the black Labrador, to go and wee on the army flagpole. And this cause <laughs> is cause committee meetings day after day. And the focus was Max. It wasn't the Royal Marines, it wasn't the Army, it wasn't the Navy that was there, it wasn't anything else that was going on in the world. The focus was Max. And sort of, it was the focus in 1914 because one of these dogs they thought was creeping in was Max. Christopher, you have one word to say what to look out for next week, apart from Max, of course. Apart from Max, very, very seriously, let's look out what will happen and it will be a result. Yes, let's go to Russia mm. in, in, the, in the Crimean elections and then what happens after that. All right, my thanks to all our guests this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back same time next week. For now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 